sections of Psalm 104. Thank you very much. With splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundations it can never be moved. You covered it with the watery depths as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. But at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. And to verse 13. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. Verse 33. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. Amen. Alice, can we have the PowerPoint up, please? Um, Psalm 104 starts with the words, praise the Lord my soul. It ends with the same words. I almost skipped over them. I mean, that's just how Psalms start, right? Loads of them just start with praise. So you kind of, I was tempted almost not to really think about them. Psalm 103 starts with the same words. So does this one, and then so does Psalm 105 and about 20 others. But before we get into the main part of the psalm, it might be worth pausing here for a moment. Now, I don't know why it starts that way. Perhaps, oh, it's kind of cut off the top. Sorry about that. Um, perhaps the writer's so focused on God and so in communion with God that he turns to praise without even thinking about it. That's just the start point. Never mind circumstances or evidence or anything else. Just praise God. Or maybe he was so full of joy at what he was about to write that he spoiled the ending and cut straight to the punchline. Like we sang at the start, indescribable, unfathomable. So rather than using a whole lot of words to try and get close, just sum it all up with praise the Lord, my soul. The shortest psalm is 119, but I wonder if the shortest psalm could have been just those five words. There's so much to unpack just in those five words. Praise and all that that means. We could talk 
for a long time on that. The Lord, not a Lord. And we could talk about the uniqueness and matchlessness of God. His Lordship over everything. Not just those who choose to accept Him as Lord. And Lord, I mean, the Hebrew scholars might tell me something different, but to me this is, it's something different than a distant creative power that just wound up a big clock and let it run. This is about a direct involved master. And then my, a fourth word, my soul. There's something personal in there, a personal responsibility. And so, my soul, not my voice or intellect, not superficial praise to a big scary being so we don't get punished, but a deep, genuine commitment. All the way through this psalm, the writer switches between addressing people, sometimes himself or sometimes others, and addressing God. This constant flick-flacking between the two. Now, academic Bible scholars can probably tell us why, but I wonder if, in part, and by the way, that means people who go to Oxford and Regents College, that's, that's what I mean by the academic brainy people. But I wonder if there's this parallel thing going on here that not sequential, not one after the other, but intertwined, you've got this conversing with God and at the same time self-discipline, self-control of body, mind, memory, emotion and spirit and community. Something about that close link between being close to God and telling others. So there are loads of other things to unpack in this psalm. Um, but let's talk about creation. So in verses 2 to 5 of the psalm, the psalm starts big. He's talking about the vastness of the heavens and describes how, compared to God, all these things are just teeny and under his control. The heavens are huge, but to God it's just like a tent, just something floppy and easy. You can put it up, you can do what you like with it. The clouds, his chariot, the winds, his messengers. I love science and the mind-bending scales of the universe. The earth looks big in the first one. You can't really see this, but there's a teeny little red spot. This laser work? Oh, there you go. Teeny little red spot there is the earth in the context of the whole solar system. And then that solar system is a speck within a speck in the Milky Way. And, and you can go on and on and on with just unimaginable scales of the universe. Apparently, it's a long way to Tipperary, but it's a really, really long way <laughs> to some of these places. And yet, over all of that is God. The next picture might be the observable universe as a speck in the hand of God. And to think that God created this just for his glory and our pleasure and to, as a way to communicate with humans. It's just awesome. In Romans 1, which I read a bit of earlier, Paul describes how God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature can be seen and understood by looking at creation. It is vastness, it is hugeness. Moving on in the psalm, verses 6 to 9 speak about watery depths and about the waters covering the whole earth and dry land appearing. Now, at first glance, your mind might be drawn to Genesis 1. Day three, where God separates the um, earth from the sea. But I think the context here where the psalmist talks about boundaries and never again 
it's more likely to be talking about the global flood in Noah's time. So here's a fun fact about global floods. Um, if all the mountains on Earth were kind of shifted and put into all the deep bits of the sea, you kept doing that until the whole solid surface of the Earth was completely flat, then water would cover the surface to a depth of about 2.6 kilometers, or about 8,500 feet. There's plenty of water, water about to flood the Earth. But all this gigantic scale, maybe it's just so big that it's meaningless. We can't get our heads around it. So let's bring things down to a tiny scale. This, Andrew's getting very excited. This is an animation of a protein. It's called ATP synthase. Um, ATP stands for something chemical. It's a protein in your cells that produces the energy for your cells. So imagine a cell as a small, bustling town with carrier proteins and motor proteins and tracks of things and enzymes building things and breaking things down. All these processes need energy. And that's generally from a chemical called ATP and it's made by this protein. That little spinny thing, that's an electric motor inside a cell in a protein powered by hydrogen ions and it's got a rotor and a stator like a proper electric motor. Well, at least one person understands electric motors and motors and stators. It's a molecular construction engine. It gets the two ingredients for ATP and almost mechanically puts them together. And it's not microscopic level. It's far smaller than that. It's really, really tiny. Your body has got, give or take, 14 trillion cells. And each cell has got a handful of these ATP molecules busy churning out ATP at a rate of about a million a minute. About half your body weight of ATP is produced and consumed every day. End of science geekery. But the point is, God is the God of the minute, the tiny, the infinitesimally small detail. I think each of the extremes kind of fills me with wonder as a bit of a science geek. But even more wonderful to me is that God does both the extremes. And somewhere in between the universe scale and the molecular scale is our own natural world. This is a picture I took two years ago to the day, almost to the hour, when you all thought I was working hard in America, I was on my holidays. <laughs> it's called Mirror Lake in Yosemite National Park, guess why? Um, absolutely stunning. This is Half Dome, right in the middle there, which is where the inspiration for the North Face symbol came from. Uh, it's kind of more domey-like and flat on one side if you look from a little bit further on to the west. And that little rock there is El Capitan, 3,000 meters straight up. So as a rock climber, that was just awesome to see. And this is Yosemite Falls, with a uh, picture of um, Salisbury Cathedral to scale. <laughs> it's huge. Now, that's maybe just me showing off my holiday photographs, but maybe that's what the wonder of creation means to you. Or maybe it's the animal kingdom that inspires you to care for creation. Right, I've got loads of these. So we'll just take a little break and look at funny pictures of animals. Oh, that's a bear hiding behind a tree. That's me. For a baby. 
We could continue all day with the wonder of creation, but then what? After awe and wonder, what's next? What makes this about more than just nice pictures? What's our response? So I want to talk a little bit about our responses to the wonder of creation based largely on Psalm 104. <coughs> and once I've done that on responses, I'm going to come back to one other aspect of creation. Done big, small, somewhere in the middle, and animals. But we'll come back to one more at the end. But let's talk responses. And the first response I want to talk about is perspective. The psalm starts off with the vastness of the world. And perspective is about realizing how small we are. But then in verse 34... The psalmist says, may my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. Knowing that God sees us as individuals. He doesn't see this as a big, vast, huge, light years across creation. with a bit of stuff happening in a little blue speck somewhere. He sees us as individuals. And that perspective, I think, is maybe our first reaction. Realizing our dependence on God and on others and on the other bits of creation. The second response is about praise. Back to verse 1. Praise the Lord my soul. And then verse 33. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. One of our reactions the beauty and majesty of creation must be praised. And as we've heard before in this series on Psalms, the natural and necessary next step from praise is telling others. Psalm 8 says that through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies. Praise is powerful. The third response I'll speak of isn't in Psalm 104, but I thought that it's worth mentioning if I'm talking about creation. In Psalm 8, which I've just quoted from, um, David talks about how God made human beings the rulers over the works of his hands. He says to God, you've put everything under humans, all flocks and herds and birds and fish. And this reflects Genesis chapter 1. And then in Colossians chapter 1, it says that all things were created through Christ and for Christ. So if we are in God's army, servants of Christ and citizens of his kingdom, then caring for creation is part of that. Come on. Wrong button, sorry. According to scripture, God created earth for humans, and we are stewards of his creation. Which means it's our responsibility to look after and care for the world. And we should accept this responsibility in appreciation of God's gift to us, of our home creation. Now, if we look back to where we discussed other aspects of creation, the majesty, the minuscule, the beauty, the power, 
we can see our perspective in the natural world. We can praise God for it, and we can see our role in protecting it. But I want to go back to another aspect of, of creation now and apply the same thing. Our stewardship of creation involves caretaking of the environment and animals, but also our families and our communities. God created the church. He created it as Christ's bride. God existed before time and space. God existed as a community, three in one. God is the originator, the creator of community, of friendship, of relationship. And like other aspects of creation, the church is often neglected and damaged. Unlike other aspects of creation, reducing, like reducing our negative impact on the environment, sometimes our individual actions seem kind of insignificant and almost meaningless. But sacrifice and collective action apply here as much as they do to cutting your carbon emissions. So what's our perspective on this? Each of us seems small in the worldwide church, but yet so loved. And just as the psalmist asked that his meditation was acceptable to God within the vastness of space, God looks to each of us to be part of the church community. What do each of us give to and get from the church? Seek both. Seek to get from the church. You're a child of God no less than anyone else in the church. And the Bible calls us to share our burdens with each other, to ask for help when it's needed. And of course, we should give to the church as well. Time, talents, money, whatever we can. And often the most important gifts are the ones that most others won't see. The quiet, fervent prayer. The word of encouragement on the side practical and being part of the church that God created should prompt us to praise we're not called to do this Christian life alone we're given a church a community to help us through it what a gift and maybe you find it hard to be full of praise and thankfulness for all aspects of the wider worldwide church or even the church that meets here in this building like physical creation it's damaged damaged by sin. But despite the flaws, it's a thing of beauty. It includes a huge diversity of culture and talent, a huge pool of prayer and potential, a source of inspiration and comfort that turns each one of us into part of a mighty machine fighting for God's kingdom. And we should praise God, particularly knowing about our sister and brother Christians who experience hardship, danger, and persecution. We've got to be full of praise that we're able to meet and worship in such freedom. And that praise must surely overflow into spreading God's word in our place. If you look at the environment like a beautiful house, the most luxurious house you can imagine, 
swimming pool, libraries, whatever you want, beautiful gardens. And imagine the king, King Charles, lets you live in that house for a little bit. Enjoy it and look after it. You wouldn't want him to visit unannounced and see the house ruined through neglect. Now, while scripture, I think, is clear on our responsibility to care for the environment while we're here, the physical earth will pass away. The church, on the other hand, as the bride of Christ, will be with him in eternity. It will not fade away. So how much more is Christ interested in his bride than a house? And how much more then should we invest in the church that God has created? Protect it, nurture it, advocate for it. And one final note to end on. If we and everything around us is just the random accident of the collisions of atoms and energy, then joy and beauty are just useful illusions. But Psalm 104 verse 15 reminds us that God also created joy and beauty as a gift to us. So let's give God the glory that joy and beauty are gifts of creation to us, that we should praise God for them, seek them out, often looking past the surface layer. We should nurture and protect beauty and joy. Well, thank you for listening. Um, let's worship our Creator with a final song. And as the band come up, let's remember that God created the vast universe for his glory. But he's also the God of the detail and the unseen, the unseen acts as well. And remember that God is also the God of and the creator of community, family, church, joy, and friendship. So let's sing Jesus is Lord. <laughs>